James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 14 through 26 this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And as you're opening up there, uh, I just want to say uh, how much it means to me for you to be here or for you to be watching. Uh, Nobody likes it this way. You know, masks and masking tape and sitting at home, whatever. nobody likes it this way, but isn't it better than nothing? And uh, so I just praise the Lord that we get to be here at all, and uh, I love it, and uh, it's so, so wonderful to get to come together on the Lord's Day and worship the Lord. And, and one thing we got to remember is there are Christians right now somewhere in the world worshiping in fear of their lives, and so we're doing all right, we'll, we'll be okay. And so praise God for you being here uh, today. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you have a Bible open there, just go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But somebody will say, You have faith and I have works. You show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, God, and we pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Satan would be delighted. I'm no expert on all the things Satan likes, but I know this. Satan would be delighted. He would love it if you did not understand this passage of Scripture. I think that's how I'm going to start opening every sermon. That way everybody pays attention. I don't want to make the devil happy, so I guess I'll listen. Now, I think Satan would love it if you didn't understand this passage of Scripture. And the reason is because it's such an important corrective to at least two different ways that we misunderstand biblical Christianity. 
In other words, as a pastor, and even before I was a pastor over the years, I've seen two basic ways that people misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. They misunderstand biblical Christianity. The first way, and I think this is probably the most prevalent way that I encounter, is to think that we can work hard enough to earn God's favor. That's a problem. It's a problem to think that's the case. In fact, there are some people who come to a book like James or the Sermon on the Mount and they read it and they think, wow, finally, my kind of book. This is the kind of book that tells me if I behave right, God will like me more. But nothing could be further from the message of James. In fact, so much of Paul's writings are are him trying to make sure people don't miss this, that salvation is by grace through faith alone. You see, they, they abuse good texts like James or even the Sermon on the Mount to make it sound like we can ultimately please God with our good works. Folks take good teaching that makes it clear that the gospel actually changes us and they believe that they can change themselves. And so we have to be careful. It leads to, this error sort of leads to all sorts of legalism and Pharisaism, but it doesn't really lead to saving faith. And yet there's another ditch on the other side of the road. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. What we might call easy believism. That is, that so long as we say we believe, or as long as we just have an intellectual or mental assent to the truth, sure, we could find folks anywhere, on the street, wherever else, that would say, of course there's a God. And of course we ought to obey him. Of course Jesus died on the cross for our sins. One time I was sharing the gospel with someone, and I was telling them, I said, do you know what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a Christian? And they said, sure, yeah, of course I do. It means that you ought to do what you, your best, do all that you can do to please God, to try to follow his commandments, and if you do that, then you'll, you'll go to heaven. And I was like, well, do you mind if I tell you what the Bible says? He said, no, I don't mind at all. And I said, well, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ came into the world to die on the cross for us. He said, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, 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 that too. I know what you mean. I didn't know you were talking about that. That's so often the attitude we encounter, isn't it? Deep down inside, we think that we're supposed to do our best, but really, yeah, sure, that too is the gospel. Of course I believe Jesus died on the cross, doesn't everybody? Just because we say we believe, just because we say that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and He died on the cross for our sins, just because we have a a mere mental assent to the truth, it does not mean necessarily that we have biblical faith. And so one error leads to legalism, but the other error, this error, leads to apathetic, tepid, lukewarm, milk toast, non-Christianity. But it doesn't lead to saving faith. And both of these errors are prevalent. And praise be to God, the text of the Bible deals with both. And in fact, James deals with this in such a, a, a profound way. And Paul deals with this other error in such a profound way that sometimes people think the two contradict. But I think the reality is that what James teaches and what Paul teaches about grace and works dovetail perfectly to give us a fully orbed view of what the Christian life ought to look like. 
This morning, I want to make sure, because I think James, by the Holy Spirit, wants to make sure that you have flesh and blood, real life, life-changing faith. Not a theory, not just a simple sort of, oh sure, oh that, yeah, of course that, but actual, genuine, life-changing faith. And I want to show you three truths this morning that will help you, I hope, evaluate your faith to make sure it's authentic flesh and blood faith. None of this theoretical stuff, none of this pie-in-the-sky stuff, actual saving faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the first point this morning. Faith is not theoretical. Uh, Faith is not theoretical. I want you to reject faith as a theory. There was a saying I heard a lot growing up. I can't quote all the sayings I heard growing up here. (laughs) Especially not the ones I learned in my very own home growing up. But I can quote some. This is a good one. I think it works. You ever heard somebody say, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good? Y'all heard that one before? One of my favorite days in seminary was we had a missiology class. And uh, the professor said, are there any sayings from where you're from that you don't think other people have heard before? And I was like, this is my day. I'm so excited. Like, this is my day. It's the best day in seminary. I finally came prepared for class. He's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. I've heard that saying a lot, and we all know what that means. There's a sort of of sort of pie-in-the-sky Christianity that is so focused on, quote, spirituality and so focused on, quote, heaven that it really never gets around to much here in this world. And the reality is this world is not our home. And, And the reality is that we can shrink the faith down, we can flatten the faith out to where it's all about this world and really miss the gospel that way too, but we can also miss the gospel by always making our faith theoretical always keeping it out there somewhere, always keeping it just a few inches off the ground. Paul, I mean, James helps us see what he means by this. Here, here, listen to this illustration. He he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, right? Uh, uh, He theorizes about faith. He says he has faith, but he doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. So imagine this for a moment. You, a very good and proper Christian, encounter another human being, perhaps even another Christian, if a brother or sister, James said, right? Seems to be indicating this is someone maybe you even go to church with. And each week you, they don't make a big show of it, but it becomes clear to you that... Um, They probably just don't have all the things they need. Now, what I don't mean by that is that they're not living the same lifestyle that you live or whatever else. What I mean is they don't have enough to eat. And it's cold outside, if you can imagine such a world at this point. And you notice their children don't have warm coats. You, You just notice it just seems like things aren't quite enough. And you've got plenty. In fact, your kids have more than one coat, like my kids do. Feels like in the winter, every other day, I got a new coat coming into the house for the kids or some kind of clothes or whatever else. You've got enough, right? One day they break down and they say, My friend, 
we don't have enough, and I don't know what I'm going to do. They're not asking you for help, but they, they just don't have enough. And here's what you do. You say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take care of this. Every eye, every eye closed, every head bowed. Let's pray. All the while, you're sitting lopsided in the pew because you've got so much money in your wallet. You could go right then and fix the problem, right? You, you could go right then and fix the problem. You know what you could do to help them, to serve them, and yet you don't. What do you say? Oh, Lord, I pray that these people who are freezing in the cold would be warm. And, oh, Lord, I pray that these people who are hungry would be fed. Amen. Well, I'm running late. I'm meeting my family for lunch. Thank you. Goodbye. Now, that looks really Christian, doesn't it? It looks really Christian. I went to a Christian college. I went to a seminary. And you know the really spiritual people are the people who stop and pray on the spot. Those are the, those, those are the godly ones. We, man, look, you walk down the hall, somebody's praying for somebody else in the hall, and you're like, wow. Somebody loves Jesus here today. It looks Christian, doesn't it? But really what it is, is a faith that's theoretical. What James is saying is, when you demonstrate a sort of faith that just says to someone, oh goodness, you're hungry, oh goodness, you're cold, be warmed and filled, and you go about your merry way, that what you're really doing is demonstrating a sort of faith that is not accurate, it is not genuine, it is not flesh and blood. Because as spiritual as we want to be, the reality is we are still flesh, and we are still, we are still blood. As much as we want to think about going to heaven, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And yet right here in this world that's not our home, people still have stomachs that get hungry. People still have bodies that get cold. Our flesh, I mean our faith, must hit the ground. There must be some boot leather on our faith. It must turn into something. One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, James's illustration goes, faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead not paltry not struggling dead this is what i love about christianity god doesn't take us to heaven as soon as we're saved isn't that wonderful the lord leaves you here to work on his behalf there's work to be done we cannot practice spiritual escapism we cannot remove ourselves totally from a world that has needs. Now, the reality is that that is not primarily what we need to give folks. We know that. We're good Baptists. We recognize that. We see that. We live that out. We need to give people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, we cannot be so preoccupied with giving them the gospel that we have emptied our faith out in such a way that it never actually gets to work in this life. Faith is not a theory. It's not theoretical. We need flesh and blood faith. But second of all, we must also recognize that faith must change our hearts. Faith must change 
our hearts. I can relate to James because someone has objected to him. He's making an argument and someone has come up and posed a question to him. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. How does he respond? It's a good, it's a good question. Some people are real into faith. Some people are real into works, James. Why is it that you're trying to make sure that the two meet? Well, he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, what he's saying is we can't separate the two. You, you can't have one without the other if you want to have balanced, biblically faithful Christianity. The two must be put together. God put them together. Let no man cast them asunder. And he gives another illustration. He gives another illustration. This time, instead of a hungry brother or sister, he takes us and introduces us to a demon. You believe that God is one. You do well. What you need to understand about the world in which James is writing is that religious people, were, especially Christians and Jews, were distinguished by monotheism. They lived in a polytheistic world. And so he takes the most Sunday school thing you can come up with. It's right there in the Shema, right? The thing that every little Jewish child would have learned. And, the, and this is also a truth that every single pagan who converted to Christianity had to embrace. There is no other God but the Lord our God. God is one. You believe that God is one. You do well. It's a good thing. James isn't saying that doesn't matter. What he's saying is that if your orthodoxy is at the same exact level as the orthodoxy of hell, then you have a problem. Notice what he says. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. <laughs> I love this portrait of demons. I just love this thought of a demon hanging out wherever demons hang out. And... Uh, Remembering there's a God and, and getting a cold chill down a spine. You know, we, we watch scary movies and we get scared. Demons think about God and get scared. And part of, the, part of the point that James is making is they've got it figured out better than we do most of the time. But you ought to be more afraid of the Lord than you are of a demon. A God who has power to cast both body and soul into hell. That's what the demons know. And it scares them to think about that fact. But what's the difference between genuine biblical faith and demonic orthodoxy? What's the difference? James is arguing that the heart of a true believer has been changed. What does he say? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he goes on to give examples of the way that works emanate from faith. In other words, authentic good works come from a heart that's been changed. I think that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I think that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. When you think about the ethical teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ethical teaching of the New Testament, what James is teaching in this book, if you really think about it, and I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a good one. Imagine this for a moment. You're before the judgment seat of God, okay? And you're standing before the Lord, and it's time for you to be judged for all that you've done in your life. And God says, you've got two choices on what I'm going to judge you by, okay? It's your choice. 
Two choices on what I'm going to judge you by. Your choice. Here's the first choice, the Ten Commandments. Here's the second choice, the Sermon on the Mount. What's your choice? Give me the Ten Commandments every time, right? I mean, give me the Ten... Here's your choice, the Ten Commandments or the book of James? Man, Lord, please give me the Ten Commandments, right? The ethical teaching of the New Testament is far and beyond. It is deeper. It is more difficult than the law of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus, in so many ways, is expounding on the law of the Old Testament. I think James is doing the same exact thing. Stop for a moment and consider and think and recognize that what the Bible is telling you to do in the New Testament is only possible if you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ when you are saved. You are given the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says that rather than having a law that's external to us, that we're trying in our flesh to try to behave and measure ourselves against, instead, when the Holy Spirit indwells our hearts, the very law of God and the heart of God is written on our hearts. And we are then given a new internal reality in Christ that we then have a conformity to God's law that comes from the inside and not from the outside we are transformed by the gospel and that's something a demon can't say and so while a demon would say oh yeah of course of course jesus is god's son of course he died on the cross for the sins of men a demon doesn't believe a demon is not transformed that's what faith does transforms our hearts it makes it impossible for us to be be warmed and filled Christians. Don't you see what James is doing? He, he's not going to allow us to have a faith that doesn't change who we are. And that leads us to our final point this morning, and it's this. Faith is proven by works. Faith is proven by works. Now, I believe with all my heart, that you are saved by grace through faith alone. I think it's what the Bible teaches, and I think it's exactly what James believed, and I think that's exactly why James uses the language he uses in this passage. I, I think I'm, I'm relatively convinced, more than likely, that at some level or another, this material from James, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty convinced at some point it was a sermon. I, I think this was probably preached to the Lord's people, and it was copied down and circulated. And I think James is intentionally, intentionally being provocative to Christian people. Now, I know that you guys can't imagine a world where a preacher would intentionally be provocative, but I do think it's the case here. Where he would say something, right, that, that really makes you think, that, that challenges you, that forces you to evaluate what you've always thought. Think about it. Think about what he says. What is he teaching? I think he's arguing that saving faith precedes good works. We know that good works do not produce salvation. But I think the reality is that a lot of us just want to prop our faith up by the jukebox, even though it's dead. We, we sort of want to make it seem like, right? We want to sort of weekend at Bernie's faith, where we're taking it around everywhere and showing it off, but in reality, it's not alive. And James is saying you can say that salvation is by grace through faith alone all you want. You can say, oh yeah, of course I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins all you want. 
you can do well to say God is one. In fact, it can rattle to you to your core to think of the fact that there is one God and that one day you'll face Him. And yet if your faith, if your belief is not producing fruit, then it is not a living faith. And he gives the example of Abraham. What does he say? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now that sounds contradictory to what I preach, doesn't it? We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith. And you see, verse 22, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the exact same text that Paul uses to try to demonstrate that salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. And he was called a friend of God. And then in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. First of all, I think James is intentionally using this language to make us think, to make us consider, to fight this error of easy believism. And second of all, I think we have to be reminded that there are two different sorts of justification, or two senses of justification in the Scriptures. The first is the justification you receive by faith when you're saved. Right? When you individually in your heart subjectively know, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit, and at that very moment, by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and by His gospel, you are justified before God. You receive a righteousness at that moment that is not your own. But what the Scripture teaches is that something between that moment when you're justified before God and the last moment when you face a holy God, something happens. That faith that has objectively made you righteous before God begins to grow in your own heart and life. You begin to produce a fruit. You begin to grow. You become more and more like Jesus. Thanks to that saving faith, you subjectively become more like Christ. You grow in holiness. You are sanctified. And then one day you will face God and you will give an answer for the deeds done in the body. And on that day, what God will see is, first of all, that objective, true faith that you put in Jesus Christ at the beginning. And He will see the righteousness of Christ that covers you. But don't think for a moment that God won't also see the authentic fruit that that faith bore out in your life. I think Paul is talking about the justification you receive on the day that you're saved. And I think James is talking about that justification proved to be true before God on the judgment day. Both are true. Both are essential. Paul is talking about your current justification. James is talking about your future justification. And the Bible will not allow us to get lazy and sit there and think, well... You know, if it's all about grace, I guess I ought to sin more so that grace may abound. What did Paul say? May that never be the case. What does James say? Will that faith save you? Can a faith that doesn't produce works really save? Is it actually alive? He goes on to talk about Rahab. Sure, Rahab believed in God, but she put it to work by saving the spies. Faith, 
James tells us, without works, is dead. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, James is not going to allow us to be foolish and to be deceived. He's not going to let us live our lives with a faith that's cheap and it's rooted in cheap grace. He's not going to let us have the identical faith to a demon. He's not going to let us be good standing members at First Baptist Church of hell. He is going to insist that we do not have the same faith as a demon and call it Christian. My friends, what James is telling us is that if you have genuine, authentic, justifying faith before Jesus Christ, if you have really been changed, if you have really been transformed, at some point or another, that rubber is going to hit the road. If your spirit has really been transformed, if you have really put authentic spiritual faith in Jesus Christ, in the Father, if you have really done that at some point or another, that flesh won't just, that faith will not just be theoretical. At some point or another, that faith won't just be spiritual. As time goes on, as things progress, you'll see it demonstrated that you have real, authentic flesh and blood faith. Eventually, we are changed. By the gospel. I want to give you the opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ today. And in no way contradicting this passage, I tell you, you cannot be saved by works of the law. You, you cannot be saved by works of the law. And if you're sitting around all the time thinking, if I could just do better, I would be saved, then you are missing the point of the gospel. James, if he were sitting here today, would with a hearty amen say, sinners are saved by grace through faith. And Paul, if he were sitting here today, would say with a hearty amen, and that faith will transform your life and produce good fruit and good works. This morning, I want you to know that you may be of a sort of thought process and mindset that sees Christianity as a set of rules that you need to obey. And you may be of the sort of mindset that says, I've got saved years ago and and that's all that matters and so no matter how I act now I've got grace in my back pocket and everything's okay if you are in either of those camps what this passage and what the spirit is doing today is calling you to repent and to believe in Jesus turn from your sin and embrace Christ in righteousness second of all as I said you may be an unbeliever who needs Jesus today but second of all you may be a believer you may say, Pastor, I've just got to get my, I've got to get busy with my faith. Take this time to respond to the Lord. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. After this service is over, when we're done, I'd love to talk with you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. While we can't come to the altar right now, I want you to stay where you are and do business with the Lord during this time. After this prayer, you respond to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together, some of us here, some of us worshiping remotely. But God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship and to hear your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.